0: You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 16th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, the exodus from Rafa continues as Israel intensifies its bombardment of southern Gaza. But with the UN aid chief saying evacuating to safe places is an illusion, where can people go? Also ahead on today's programme, we're in Munich as the security conference begins. But with Trump, Gaza and Ukraine all topping the agenda where do we start? We head to the moon as SpaceX launches its first private lander and Andrew Muller brings us back down to earth with his take on the last seven days.
1: We learned that Trump appears to believe that NATO is not a defensive alliance but some sort of protection racket. Nice little continent you Europeans have here wouldn't want anything to happen to it.
0: Plus the papers and a review of the Singapore air show too. That's all coming up on The Globalist live from London. So, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. Greece's parliament has approved a bill to legalise same-sex marriage. A judge in New York has set the date for Donald Trump's trial on criminal charges and Ukraine is withdrawing troops from the eastern town of Avdivka after months of heavy fighting. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, there was chaos yesterday in Gaza's biggest functioning hospital as Israeli special forces went in. Israel said they meant no harm to civilians at Nasser Hospital, but those inside claimed snipers were firing at people trying to leave and patients have been killed. Israel was warned earlier this week that a planned ground offensive in the south of Gaza could have devastating consequences for Palestinian civilians there. Around 1.5 million people are taking refuge in Rafah, close to the border with Egypt. So for the latest on all this, let's hear now from Greg Karlstrom, who's a Middle East correspondent and author of How Long Will Israel Survive? the threat from within. Uh, Welcome back, Greg. Hi, good morning. So these scenes of chaos that were being posted on social media yesterday, it it just appeared that, well, could you just recap what appears to have happened inside NASA Hospital?
2: It's the same sort of thing that we saw in Shifa Hospital in northern Gaza earlier in the war and elsewhere in Gaza. That hospital had been uh, not only a refuge for patients as one of the last functioning hospitals in Gaza, but Also, for thousands of civilians who thought it was a comparatively safe place to shelter. Israeli troops uh, shelled the hospital, bombed the hospital. There were reports of doctors killed and patients injured by bombardment. Uh, And then Israeli troops breached through the the wall around the hospital and entered the compound. They were saying that uh, they thought hostages were being held there or the remains of hostages, Israeli hostages were being held there. Uh, There is no evidence so far that that has been the case. And meanwhile, Uh, Again, the doctors and patients inside said it was just an absolutely chaotic scene.
0: Indeed, Israel said it was a precise and limited and targeted operation with credible evidence that Hamas has built up infrastructure in the area. Um, Hamas has denied holding Israel hostages at the hospital. But this seemed to be the, the very familiar narrative, doesn't it? That Israel believes that Hamas is using places which people consider to be a safe haven as a place to shelter their terrorists and also hostages
2: it is and israel so far has not proved any of its more dramatic claims about hospitals in gaza if you think back a couple of months the argument was that shifa hospital the largest hospital in gaza was being used as a command and control center as a headquarters for hamas the israeli army did find uh, some weapons in the basement it found evidence of of some tunnels uh, on the hospital grounds uh, in, in outbuildings at the hospital but nothing to suggest that it was still being used as a military headquarters. And when you talk to lawyers, to international law experts, they say a lot of what Israel has presented so far in support of its raids on hospitals doesn't meet the criteria for stripping away their protection under international law and and treating them as military targets.
0: I mean, if the hospital in Hanunis, the NASA Hospital, which is the biggest functioning hospital in Gaza, ceases to be able to treat people and indeed give them shelter, is there any idea about what happens next?
2: No, and you know it's the biggest functioning hospital, but functioning is a, a very relative term. in Gaza, at this point, you've had hospitals for months that have had shortages of uh, all sorts of basic medical equipment. Operating on people without anesthetics because they can't find anesthetics, uh, running out of even basic things like uh, bandages and, and stretchers and crutches and things like that. Uh, so the healthcare system has already largely collapsed. And then for the thousands of people who were sheltering there. Uh, You have ongoing fighting in Khan Yunis, very heavy fighting there. You have this talk of a ground offensive in Rafah, uh, and people say it's it's not at all clear to where they are meant to to, supposed to flee.
0: Indeed, I mean Palestinians were saying that they were heeding the warning that they had to flee, Um, but there were reports online yesterday that those who were trying to flee the hospital were being targeted by Israeli snipers. But on a more general note, if they are being told to go, where are they supposed to
3: go?
2: Well, that's the that's the question that everyone is trying to figure out now. You have 1.4 million people or so who have been displaced to Rafah, to the southernmost city in Gaza. Uh, they have begun, in, in at least small numbers, to flee ahead of what they fear is a ground offensive there. Some people have actually gone back to Khan Yunus, even though, again, there is still very heavy fighting in that city and probably will be for several weeks to come. Others have tried to go to a place called al-Mawasi, which is on the coast in southwestern Gaza. Uh, it's an area the Israeli army has said will be a safe zone, or at least the safer zone. But people get there and find there's very limited infrastructure. It's hard to find water, to find medicine, to find uh, basic supplies. People have really run out of options at this point. Rafah was the, the last place in the south of Gaza, and now you have a closed Egyptian border on one side uh, and an ongoing fighting on the other.
0: You have um, also louder calls from um, various international players. Earlier on this week, we had Australia, Canada and New Zealand warning Israel not to mount a ground offensive. And the French President Emmanuel Macron called Benjamin Netanyahu earlier this week and said that the Gaza death toll is intolerable and has insisted the Israeli offensive must cease. How loud are these calls now growing from the international community in general?
2: I mean, everyone is warning Israel not to do this. Not only uh, Western countries, including the United States, which hasn't actually said don't do this, but has told Israel it needs uh, a detailed plan for how to protect civilians. You've also had very harsh warnings from the Egyptian government. Of course, Rafah sits on the border uh, with Egypt, and and the Egyptians are worried not only about fighting on their border but about possible uh, flows of refugees across that border. And so they have warned Israel if you go ahead with this offensive. Uh, we might suspend our peace treaty, the, the Camp David Accords that brought peace to Egypt and, and Israel more than 40 years ago. Uh, of course, the Palestinians have urged Israel not to do it. Just about everyone is warning Israel not to go ahead with this offensive. But at least the rhetoric from Prime Minister Netanyahu is still that Israel plans to do exactly that.
0: So tell us a little bit more about you know what it is about Netanyahu who is that the means that he is refusing to listen to this growing wave of, of calls. He obviously has a a large amount of domestic uh, politics to handle and to manage.
4: He
2: does. And I'll say first, and I'll say first, I don't think the offensive is quite as imminent as Netanyahu's rhetoric suggests. The Israeli army uh, has not started moving troops towards Rafah. It hasn't called up uh, reservists. In fact, it's demobilized many of the reservists that it uh, called up after October 7th. So I don't think the offensive is going to happen in the coming days. It's something that Uh, is still probably weeks away. But yes, for Prime Minister Netanyahu, he's at a point where he has to make a choice. Either uh, these ongoing hostage negotiations in Cairo will bear fruit and lead to a perhaps six-week truce and the release of hostages, and the hope is that you can build from that into a a more durable end to the war. But that is simply an unpalatable outcome for many of Netanyahu's right-wing supporters uh, who want to continue fighting until what the Prime Minister has called Total victory. So, for him, for his right-wing base, uh, there's a, a strong incentive to to keep fighting, to ignore this international pressure, to not agree to a hostage deal with Hamas, uh, and instead to to go ahead with this offensive in the coming weeks.
0: Do we have any idea at what point the international community will actually do something to stop this from happening? I mean, you mentioned earlier earlier on that the United States has not told Israel to stop, but has told you know Israel to just temper its Its behavior. We have this dreadful conundrum for um, Sisi in Egypt, whereby if he allows people to come out of Gaza, then the country will, then Egypt will have to welcome who knows how many uh, refugees. But if he keeps it closed, then we've got 1.4 million people who could find themselves at the heart of a catastrophe. Will there be one event which makes the rest of the world just think, no, we must stop this now?
2: Most of the world has wanted to stop this for months now, but the one country that really matters here is the United States. It's Israel's biggest provider of military aid and arms, and it has furnished the weapons that have allowed Israel to continue this war for four and a half months now. If you look at the long list of things that the Americans have asked Israel to do since October 7th, even uh, political moves like uh, committing to the establishment of a Palestinian state to promising that the Palestinian Authority to come back to Gaza after the war and, and govern in Gaza after the war, uh, they have been rebuffed time and time and time again by Prime Minister Netanyahu's government. And they haven't actually used the leverage at their disposal. They haven't threatened to suspend military aid to Israel or to slow or halt the deliveries of weapons to Israel. And I think unless the Biden administration uh, is willing to do that, which it has refused to do so far, uh, these calls for Israel to delay the offensive or, or come up with a plan for civilians, uh, I think the Israeli government is not going to feel that much pressure to to
0: listen to Washington. Greg Karlstrom, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. It's uh, 8.11 in Munich, 7.11 here in London. Now, the Munich Security Conference starts today. It's an event which has gained prominence in the last couple of years as the second anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine approaches next week. But there are more equally pressing items vying to top the agenda. First, the Israeli-Hamas conflict, which we've just been hearing about. And secondly, the prospect of Donald Trump returning to the White House. But what role does the host Germany play in all this? Well, I'm joined now by Aaron Burnett, journalist and co-host of the Berlin an Inside Out podcast. Uh, he joins me on the line from Munich. A very good morning to you, Aaron.
5: Good morning. Um,
0: just tell us a little bit about what what's being described as a as a Munich spirit, um, the 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 ability for Munich to to do so well at an event like this. What do you think that might mean?
5: Well, I think that refers to uh, the agenda setting power of the hosts, uh, which is of course uh, Germany. Um, Germany certainly uses this conference, has used it for years to really steer. Uh, the foreign policy discussion and and, um, security topics in the way uh, that it uh, wants to do so. And this year uh, is certainly no exception. Um, What is interesting here um, this year uh, are the people who are in the room a lot and the people who are also not here, which probably gives you a little bit of a sense as to how Uh, some of the conversations might go. Uh, Right now, um, this is a very sort of uh, German-American-dominated conference. Uh, We have uh, U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris, of course, um, speaking, uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, but there are also some interesting people giving it a miss. Um, Rishi Sunak from the U.K., Emmanuel Macron from France, Donald Tusk from Poland. uh, And and I think that's very interesting because um, these are uh, sort of Two camps that differ wildly on questions like uh, Ukraine's future uh, in NATO, whether it should be made uh, a member or not, and also uh, how um, these countries view uh, Ukrainian victory, what is needed uh, to be able to help Ukraine to actually win this conflict uh, against Uh, the Russians and contain Russia uh, in Ukraine before they're able to threaten uh, anyone else. And we see a huge difference um, with uh, the Americans and and the Germans on that. Uh, So uh, I, I think Germany is obviously going to use this conference to steer this discussion in the direction it wants, uh, but there's going to be a lot of things uh, missing here, I think, in Munich as well.
0: Tell us which direction that Germany will, will want to try to steer things, given the fact that it you know, being host of the security conference now is its chance.
5: Uh, I think uh, we've heard a lot of chatter here saying that Germany generally accepts the need for uh, burden shifting on NATO spending, that it has to uh, spend more on its own defence, that Europe needs to uh, do that as well. Uh, we've heard this week that Germany is actually going to meet the NATO uh, 2% um, of GDP target on uh, defence spending for the first time since, I believe, 1990. Uh, so this is just an accepted um Uh, an accepted point now it seems in Munich among the chatter here. What Germany is going to do, I think, is to really demonstrate um, to its allies and especially to the Biden administration, which uh, has a lot of representatives here, uh, that it is a reliable ally in Europe um, and, and uh, at the same time as it obviously hedges against the possibility of a of a Trump presidency. Um, but beyond that, I think that Germany um, is unfortunately going to advocate for a lot of preserving the status quo. Uh, Germany has not, for example, said really clearly that it thinks that Ukraine should win uh, this conflict uh, with Russia. It said that it shouldn't lose, but those things are... Uh, very uh, slightly different. Um, And uh, we heard the chair of the Munich Security Conference, uh, Christoph Heuskin, who, of course, uh, was a top advisor to Angela Merkel for many years uh, on German TV a few weeks ago, saying that he sees uh, this conflict between Ukraine and Russia ending with some sort of Minsk-style settlement. Uh, That's not exactly inspiring a lot of confidence among um, some of Germany's Central and Eastern European allies who would like to see more full-throated support for Ukraine, for example.
0: So what happened, therefore, to the, to the I think, it was, if I remember rightly, it was called the Zeitenbender speech, which, which Olaf Scholz gave days after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, when he said that this is a, a turning point in, in Germany's approach to the military?
5: Uh, I think, I I mean, that's a very good question in terms of where the Seitenwende is actually going. Uh, There is a lot of rhetoric. We don't necessarily see um, the kinds of changes that we would need to see. Of course, Olaf Scholz has uh, pledged a 100 billion euro special fund uh, to modernize the German military. We've seen. Uh, top foreign policy experts like Roderick Kiesewetter with the opposition Christian Democrats say this fund isn't enough. It needs to be about three times as large to really actually uh, have the kind of impact on the German military uh, that it needs to have. And the Bundeswehr is short of, of things like Band-Aids, not just fighter jets, but Band-Aids and ammunition. Last year we heard that Germany has only enough ammunition really for a war with Russia that would last for about two days. So the there's a lot of work that needs to be done for Germany to become a real serious uh, security actor in Europe to be able to um, step up if the U.S. does in fact uh, step back uh, under uh, under Trump. So a lot of rhetoric, but um, there's a lot more that needs to happen. And of course, this is a country that has a constitutional debt break, uh, which prevents it from uh, really going into a lot of debt to really invest in uh, things like the military or the green transition or anything else. This is causing a lot of problems. And, and those kinds of questions domestically still, we don't have a proper answer to this to really be able to say what's going to happen with the German military or not.
0: That sort of sets the tone for the whole conference, doesn't it? Because the report that, the, that every year the, um, the conference publishes a, a report, and this year it's called Lose Lose, and its opening line is amid growing geopolitical tension and rising economic uncertainty, Many governments are no longer focusing on the absolute benefits of global cooperation, but are increasingly concerned that they are gaining less than others as a sort of that door-closing protectionist
6: approach. Uh,
5: yeah, I mean, lose-lose, uh, you know, it, it does certainly sum up, um, I think, how um, Germany views the geopolitical moment. Um, I would probably stress Uh, by saying that this isn't necessarily inevitable. It doesn't have to be this way. I mean, Germany uh, still has a lot of um, options available to it. It could, for example, deliver uh, Taurus missiles to Ukraine. These are uh, longer-range missiles than the storm shadows that uh, France and the UK uh, have delivered to Ukraine. It would enable Ukraine to hit targets uh, that are further away than what they can hit now. Uh, That would have, I think, a huge impact on uh, the, on the geopolitical situation on the on the continent, and really be able to contribute to to an actual win, not this whole idea of of lose lose. And as far as um, as far as uh, uh, globalization is concerned, we are hearing, of course, some chatter that. Um, they, uh, about the, the US uh, which is obviously well represented here uh, wants to see a more uh, of a decoupling from uh, China for example becoming less dependent on uh, authoritarians like China that's another conversation that's happening in Munich uh, we do know uh, that Germany I- isn't necessarily fully on board with this they would prefer a de-risking approach so uh, they'd like to um, I- do less trade with China in very key very strategic sectors but uh, it's it's not really prepared to limit its overall economic exposure uh, to China. And this is a very, very, very key difference that we're seeing um, also being talked about in Munich um, between uh, uh, Germans and and, and other Europeans and uh, the US. So the Europeans aren't really necessarily on board with the idea that um, Uh, That uh, there should be perhaps a little bit more protectionism, um, particularly when it comes to authoritarians, a bit more uh, trade uh, between friends, um, more friendshoring. This is something that we don't see uh, them being sold on quite the same way yet.
0: Aaron Burnett in Munich. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's programme.
7: So we're trying as humanitarian workers to cry for help here. The world must understand that this is a mega catastrophe and it needs much more attention, much more resources, much more aid and much more diplomacy.
0: We examined Chad, one of the world's poorest countries with the largest refugee crisis. Stay with us on The Globalist.
7: UBS has over
4: 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
7: To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com.
0: 721 here in London. Let's continue with today's newspapers. And joining me in the studio is Claudine Fry, partner at Control Risks. Good morning. Nice to see you back. Thank you, Emma. Good morning. Nice to, nice to have you in the in the studio. Right. What have you spotted for us? You've got quite an interesting collection of stories for us. Not quite, perhaps not quite so obvious either. Yes, it's a bit of a mix today, isn't it? Um, shall we start with the
8: FT? Um, the first one I've picked is from uh, a piece from yesterday. But it's a piece from the FT talking about the fact that um, two of the world's biggest asset managers, JP Morgan Asset Management and State Street Global Advisors, are pulling back from a high-profile climate action initiative that was formed in late 2017 by a group of investors to unite behind action to encourage companies to reduce their carbon footprint, to promote decarbonisation. neither company is linking its move to to politics. It seems to be more about tactics than principles um, when you look at the reasoning that they are giving for their move away from this initiative. But we know that the politics around decarbonisation has changed considerably over the last few years, and particularly in the US, of course. And the, the, the piece in the FT quotes Jim Jordan, a Republican chair of the House of Representatives Judiciary Committee, describing the move as a big win for freedom and the American economy.
0: So what's prompted this? I mean, you mentioned that they have given a couple of reasons, but the, the difficulty is, is I think that with the politics, especially in the United States, being so divided on this, it has been down to the private sector to take the initiative. That's right. But some
8: of the companies who have been at the forefront of promoting decarbonisation have also attracted a lot of political criticism. And there has been um, a perception among some in the US, particularly on the Republican side of the the spectrum, that uh, some of the uh, decarbonisation efforts that are being pursued, including by investors, are overly hostile to the uh, oil and gas sector.
0: So do we believe that this is companies gearing up for a Trump presidency?
8: Well, it's definitely going to be a hugely uh, hot potato over the course of this year. Companies are going to have to be treading very, very carefully um, in the build-up to the elections later on this year in America. And and, and it's difficult on these
0: emotive topics, which um, are so fraught. Let's move to a story Um, in the Kiev Independent. um, The head of the military, uh, General Zaluzhnyi, was dismissed um, last week. And uh, he was replaced by um, a much more loyal character to uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. Um, The trouble was is that General Zaluzhny was a very popular character. And his departure has, according to the Kiev Independent, um, led to a drop in support and popularity of Volodymyr Zelensky himself.
8: Yeah, that's right, Emma. I thought this piece was really interesting because... It's, it's obviously an interesting juncture for Ukraine and this piece is pointing out some interesting um, aspects of the position that Zelensky is in at the moment. It's He's still, uh, by global standards, got very, very high approval ratings and levels of trust in him are really astonishingly high compared to leaders of most other countries around the world. Um, but they are going down. He was about 90%, I think 90% of Ukrainians... Um, That was the high point of levels of trust in him uh, in the early days of the war in in, in May 2022. Levels of trust have fallen, though. They're at about 65% now. And they they have taken a a particular hit since he removed um, Zeluzhny. Yes, the the army chief who was removed earlier this month and who had apparently um, been having increasingly difficult relationship with Zelensky, um, particularly over the way that he was pursuing the war against Russia. But I think one of the other interesting things about the polling data being reported here is that it's also pointing to um, a growing sense of pessimism among Ukrainians. So for the first time since 2022, there are more Ukrainians pessimistic about the direction that current affairs are going in than are optimistic about it. And that suggests that some of the sort of growing pessimism that is in the international discourse about the
0: war is, is maybe being felt at home as well. Next week on the 22nd of February, it's two years since Russia invaded Ukraine. And the headlines this morning is that re- Ukraine is withdrawing its troops from, from a town, um, Avdivka. After months of heavy fighting, it's running out of supply lines. Russia seems to be having the, the advantage here. I mean, to have Zelensky lose trust, what does this mean for the long term prospects and the strategy that Ukrainians can come up with?
8: Yeah, I think this is going to be a growing issue for Ukraine. Um, There is a contentious issue about the status of an election that is due to take place um, later this spring in Ukraine. uh, And uh, it's not theoretically due to take place because the country is under martial law. But it, you know, there's a question mark around the position that Zelensky and including his backers, particularly in the US, should take on on this election. So there are growing, this is going to be an issue that I think we're talking about increasingly over the coming months. Um, How legitimate is he as a leader increasingly? And what can Ukraine do to shore up the support that it has enjoyed to date in the West? That's going to become increasingly in doubt, particularly um, after a potential Trump win in the US later this year.
0: Um let's move to a story in the New York Times about India's Supreme Court striking down a contentious fundraising mechanism um that allows people to give anonymous political donations um to in the most part to the Prime Minister Narendra Modi.
8: Yes, I've picked this story because it's not very often these days that you see uh, Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India, facing a serious challenge to his authority, but this so this ruling is 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 notable. Um the New York Times is telling us uh, that the Supreme Court has yes struck down the constitutionality of so-called election bonds. So these these are payments to political parties that have been allowed since 2018 um through the State Bank of India. They are publicly anonymous. But they are known to the bank and therefore, according to critics of the government, it's possible for the ruling party to have access to information about who is making those donations. And that information is not fairly available to everybody. So there have been concerns about the transparency of these kinds of political donations for some years now. And this ruling is a blow to the ruling party, uh, to the Prime Minister, not one that's going to change his position at all, uh, particularly heading into general elections due to take place across March and April, which are all but guaranteed to return Modi to power. But they are um, a signal of judicial intent and independence.
0: Indeed, the, the New York Times highlights the fact that this judgment is unlikely to affect anything in terms of the outcome of this year's elections, but could set a precedent for further down the line. That's
8: right. And I think it'll be a, a something that will embolden uh, opponents of the government and uh, some of the positions that it's taken on issues around transparency, corruption, uh, freedom of speech to perhaps uh, continue to challenge the government more robustly.
0: Uh, let's look at a really lovely story in The Guardian that you wanted to draw our attention to. Um, I mean, plati- let's, it's the duck bill platypus that we're talking about <laughs> for the next couple of minutes. And it's one of those creatures that looks like it's about 3,000 years old anyway. <laughs>
8: That's so true. Yes, I've always been quite fond of the platypus and I've picked this piece in The Guardian. Oldest platypus found in the world is beyond reasonable expectations, say researchers. This platypus is 24 years old that's been recaptured by a biologist that first uh, tagged it back in 2000. Um, to provide a sense of context, why this is beyond reasonable expectation, expectations, most male platypus only live until the age of seven. This one's 24. And apparently it's a very stressful life the male platypus leads because there aren't that many females and they get very, very stressed and anxious when they can't find a mate. Right.
0: Yes. And they also fight
8: each other for food. That's right. Yes. Um, I th- we should spare a thought for the females they don't necessarily have an easy ride either they are they dominate the adult population and the oldest the oldest platypus is a female 30 years old in captivity but apparently uh, the biologists tell us that she's she's suffering with arthritis a cataract in one eye and potentially going deaf
0: goodness me um right so I, mean, I, I never knew any of this so this is all new to me now how did we work out that this male platypus was the oldest male going Um, Well, the biologists have been doing
8: a lot of work to um, discover uh, and work with the platypus to identify uh, aspects of its biology and how it's been able to survive
0: all this time. Claudine Fry, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. The time here in London is 7.30. A quick look now at the headlines. Greece's parliament has approved a bill to legalise same-sex marriage. Hundreds of people gathered on the streets of the capital Athens to celebrate after years of campaigning for equality in a country traditionally seen as socially conservative. Ukraine is withdrawing troops from the eastern town of Avdivka after months of heavy fighting. Russia is trying to encircle and capture Avdivka nearly two years after its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Kiev's foothold in the town appears increasingly shaky, with its supply lines threatened. And a judge in New York has set the date for Donald Trump's trial on criminal charges. The former president will stand trial on March the 25th on allegations that money was paid to a porn star in return for her silence. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. We head now to Chad, one of the world's poorest countries facing the world's largest war-related refugee crisis due to an influx of people from its conflict-ridden neighbour, Sudan. Monocle's Chris Chermak heard from Jan Egeland, Secretary-General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, who's currently visiting refugee camps in Chad. And he began by describing the situation on the ground.
7: Well, it was really heart-wrenching to be with family after family, women, children, fathers, mothers that had the most horrific stories of, uh, of abuse, violence, massacre, gang rape, torching of homes, ethnic cleansing in Darfur. So Darfur, Western Sudan, uh, the, it has seen an, a, an attack on the Masalit tribe, that has lived in, in Darfur forever, and now hundreds of thousands of them. More than half a million have fled to uh, Darfur. On top of that, 200,000 others, 700,000 people here in Eastern Chad. It's, it's, it's terrible. And we're overstretched and we're underfunded. They are not getting the aid they deserve.
3: I mean, Mr. Egeland, as, as you allude to there, I mean, this is now the sort of largest war related refugee crisis in the world. And it is striking that more people have fled from Sudan to Chad now than even during the Darfur war back in the 2000s. What in your mind makes this crisis so much worse than, than the last one?
7: Well, yeah, in 2003 and 2004, I was the Undersecretary for Humanitarian Affairs in Centrally in the United Nations. I went to the Security Council all the time. It was on the President Bush's uh, agenda, Prime Minister Blair in the UK, uh, the French uh, president, uh, the uh, EU Commission, they were seized by what they saw as the most horrific abuse in Darfur and 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 the aid was coming the diplomatic initiatives were many the pressure on the parties to the conflict were many now twenty years later the crisis is three times more i mean so three times as many people have now fled to, to Chad Three times as many people are fleeing inside uh, Sudan. The the many, many more uh, families have been devastated, and it doesn't really make much headlines. Nor uh, heads of state or government or uh, or or parliaments wanting to give aid packages, diplomatic initiatives, etc., as they should. So we're trying as humanitarian workers to cry for help here. The world must understand that this is a mega catastrophe and it needs much more attention, much more resources, much more aid and much more diplomacy.
3: Mr. Egeland, we are in this kind of extremely difficult time in the world, frankly, it feels like multiple major wars that are drawing attention and resources that the West appears less and less prepared to give. Is is it as simple as that in your mind? Or is there something else going on here in terms of why a crisis like what's happening between Sudan and Chad is, is not getting that attention that you described 20 years ago?
7: Well I, I've reflected a lot on that now uh, during this uh, this travel how come that, that, that these women who have been gang raped and who are now you know physically and mentally destroyed and and they beg for help and we don't have resources to 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 give it or, or to help prevent that new rape, new massacres take place. I think it's yeah I think it's it's like the the world can take one or two crises at the time only and then there is country after country who who become introvert nationalistic uh, obsessed with their own problems obsessed with their own polarized political uh, scene and and the international solidarity and compassion is suffering uh, so the what what we need to do is work harder to get the stories of the people that 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 whose lives depend on our solidarity to get those stories to the decision makers and the public opinions in all of the rich countries who could help do much more.
3: Well you speak there of the domestic issues and I mean one of the strange things about discussions over immigration in the US or Europe, frankly, is that we do tend to forget the extraordinary role that's being played by neighboring countries to conflict zones like where you are in Chad. What What is your sense of how Chad and its government have coped? Have they been able to cope at all?
7: What well, they, they did, what we are not doing in, in, in Europe or North America or, or Japan or Australia and or Malaysia or whatever, I mean, the rich countries are closing their border and the poor countries are the ones giving protection to people who flee for their lives. So Chad, the poorest country on earth, has taken 700,000 people in. There are, in the very poor areas I was in Eastern Chad in the in recent days, there are three times as many refugees as local people. And the, and the local people were suffering from poverty to start with. But they they, they had that border open, they took people in. So the minimum we could do is to stand with them. Um, these youth told me the following. More and more are giving up hope for a future in their own region, since there is no help. And they want to go to the Mediterranean, to cross it, to come to Europe. So if Europe wants another wave of migration, like the one we saw, they we continue like now. If we want to prevent it, we invest in hope and opportunities for, for people where they are today. But that is not happening as we speak.
0: That was Jan Egeland, Secretary-General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. You're listening to Monaco Radio. Our private spacecraft has blasted off from Cape Canaveral, its destination, the South Pole of the Moon. The craft, nicknamed Odysseus and owned by the company Intuitive Machines, was launched by Falcon Nine Rockets by SpaceX. Well Sue Nelson is a science writer, broadcaster, and author of Wally's Funk Wally Funk's Race for Space. Welcome back, Sue. Well, hello. Good to have you on the radio with us. Um, So all these names that I've just sort of spouted out, um, Intuitive Machines, SpaceX, this is entirely private sector, isn't it?
6: Yes, it is. Intuitive Machines are based in Houston. Um, And while they are private sector... Um, their CEO, Steve Altamus, was the former deputy director of NASA's Johnson Space Center. And before that, he was director of engineering. So that gives you an idea of the sort of pedigree and expertise that this particular um, private sector company has. So, you know, you're not dealing with um People who are inexperienced here—they—they they know exactly what they're doing, and they weren't down to be the first um, American private company to to get onto the um, moon surface surface since the Apollo missions. So that's how long you know—it's been almost uh, fifty years since. Um, it's been over fifty years since since the Americans have been on the moon. That was supposed to happen last month with another mission, Peregrine, won by a, another um private company in the states. But that didn't quite go as planned, and that spacecraft had to um burn up in the Earth's atmosphere eventually. So that bumped up intuitive machines to number one position to be the first American company to put a lunar lander back on the moon since the heyday of the Apollo missions between 1969 and
0: 72. So the expertise is there, the, the idea, the, 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 the intention is there. But are we now in a situation whereby in order for something such as a trip to the south pole of the moon to be made possible, this is not something that's going to be funded by US government money anymore?
6: Not necessarily, um intuitive machines though do have um they've been selected to do three lunar missions for for NASA, and you also have NASA's Artemis missions, which are going to you've already had the launch of um Artemis um one, and um we will get uh, a, the next one that has been announced to be slightly delayed, which will be in orbit around the moon and eventually you will get um, astronauts on the moon. Um, So it it will be a mix of, of both. And it's important to know that it's not just America here. Five countries have landed on the moon since um the apollo missions and that includes japan most recently you've got china russia india and all over the world you've got startup like in india there are quite a number of startup companies that are, you know, trying to, to, getting involved in in this business. And America weren't actually the first commercial mission to the moon, technically technically speaking. In 2014, China launched the first commission, uh, commercial mission to the moon. The moon. Admittedly, it, it was nothing like the size of um, the lander that Intuitive Machines have got on the way to the lunar surface, which looks like a sort of elongated, taller version of the, um, you know, Apollo lunar um, lander. This was literally the size of a shoebox. It really was. It was a micro satellite It was like sixty centimeters long by. 26 and 10 deep so it it was like a a shoebox and it was made uh, by a company in luxembourg but it just shows you that um there are lots of companies around the world who do see a lunar economy ahead and that is definitely what is going to happen it is no longer the preserve of big space agencies it is now open to the private sector
0: indeed and the the one of the purposes um of Odysseus is to try and pave the way for the establishment of a crude base on the South Pole of, of the moon. You've just mentioned other countries as well. Um, the, is there a sense that there isn't, there, it's going to get quite busy up there?
6: Uh, potentially, as somebody who's just finished season four of uh, the rather brilliant series for all mankind, um, yes, if, if if that's a vision of the future, um, uh, yes, it will get uh, get rather busy. I, I think it it reminds me and many others of the opening up of Antarctica, and and a lot of comparisons are often made between the Moon and Antarctica. And if you think about how Antarctica works, is that you've got all these separate bases um on in the south pole all belonging like you've got the british antarctic survey you know you've got a base with the the americans you've got a base further away with with the new zealanders you've got all these different bases and i suspect um it will be like that you unless there are um collaborations between countries and it was interesting that quite recently nasa um announced that the um excuse me the uh united arab emirates were going to make one of their um uh lunar modules for gateway the the orbiting station that will be um uh, uh, that they've got planned as part of the artemis program to go uh, around the the moon and they're providing an airlock for for gateway so If you get these collaborations, you will get bases with lots of different nationalities on. But yes, you are likely to get lots of separate bases for for different competing companies. But, you know, the moon's quite a big place. And um, even if you look at the area that the Apollo landings um, were on, it's nothing. It's absolutely nothing in terms of the surface area. But the South Pole is the place to be because it's got this frozen water ice and if you've got frozen water ice you've got potentially water there to um, drink uh, and you've also got the potential to convert it into fuel the h2o into fuel
0: thank you very much indeed for joining us on the line that was sue nelson you're listening to the globalist on monocle radio ubs is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Now, the Singapore Air Show gets underway next week. Here to talk about it is Murdo Morrison, Head of Strategic Content at Flight Global. Good morning, Murdo. Good morning. So let's talk first about Boeing, um, a company very much with its tail between its legs, in, because of increasing and repeated questions of its the safety of its manufacturing practices. Um, but it has to go to Singapore because that is one of its big markets. So what's that going to be like?
4: Well, I think the Singapore Air Show uh, next week is going to be is going to be pretty good news for Boeing and pretty good news for Airbus as well, and pretty much the whole industry. Um, after a a very, very long uh, COVID uh, travel restrictions took longer to lift in much of uh, Asia Pacific than in the rest of the world, Uh, the region there is is really uh, recovering strongly in terms of uh, demand for air travel and that is feeding through to um, demand for Boeing and Airbus's products I think we'll see quite a lot of order activity next week at the Singapore air show already um, Thai Airways for example has said that it is going to be buying or or committing or, or confirming an order for a uh, 45 Boeing wide bodies which is which is great news for Boeing. So I think the the message really is that despite the uh you know the the, the well publicized problems that Boeing has got and the supply chain and the uh, Materials and all the other problems facing the industry, uh, the 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 commercial aviation industry at the moment is is going to have it's going really strongly and it's going to have a very 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 strong 2024.
0: That's a, that perhaps suggests that the likes of Boeing and Airbus are absolutely untouchable because the demand is so high.
4: Yes. Uh, I mean, if you look at Airbus's figures, uh, they came out this week. Uh, I mean, Airbus has done much better than Boeing uh, really over the last, uh, uh, really during and, and after the, the pandemic. Uh, I mean, Airbus are saying they're expected to deliver 800 aircraft this year. I mean, that is just an incredible number. They took over 2,000 aircraft orders last year alone. Um, so, you know, their problem really is not, uh, it's not, demand it's uh, it's 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 been able to build all these aircraft because these are really sort of complicated uh in time assembly processes and uh, supply chain problems have been affecting the manufacturers but it is certainly not uh, a case of demand being lacking at the moment
0: let's look at some of the other big things that are going to be happening at singapore um one of the issues is but vert- well one of the big the big things is going to be uh, Electrical vertical takeoff aircraft. Um, those are, you know, electrical vertical takeoff is something which I think we're still a long way off from that, are we, or are we getting closer?
4: Well, we're getting closer. I mean, yes, you're right. I mean, for for years, I mean, really, pretty much the past ten years, we've we been, um you know, reporting about all these sort of futuristic concepts. There's probably about a dozen uh, companies that are uh, that are making these. You know, for a long time, it was all about. Uh, getting them designed and, and perhaps getting them to fly. Now we're really moving towards this actually happening as an industry. Uh, quite a few of these have flown. Uh, Chinese built one called the uh, um, the Ehang, has actually been sophisticated in China. So it's uh, it's gone into service. And I think the appetite in uh, the Asia Pacific region for these uh, sort of novel aircraft is, is really uh, quite high. I think uh, Asia Pacific will be you know a real early adopter uh, of this technology and i think there's you know there's several reasons for that there's a sustainability angle which plays really well in countries like japan and australia but there's also you know and there's huge congested cities that uh, where this provides an alternative to ground uh, transportation uh, mm-hmm. and also you know in countries like indonesia you know there's there's not great ground infrastructure air taxis uh, could be a solution to a lot of their uh, transport problems.
0: Murdo Morrison, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Finally on today's show, it's time for Andrew Muller's weekly look at what we've learned in the last seven days.
1: We learned this week of a sort of metaphor for absolutely everything – Let's have some music which evokes some kind of prelapsarian pastoral ideal of England at its greenest and most pleasant. The theme from the archers, or something. That'll get us there. We learned that in the Somerset seaside settlement of Western Supermare, an idea had been had vis a streamlining the maintenance of the pretty floral clock, which has adorned the park on Alexandra Parade since the 1930s. Yes, we learned that the local Lions Club, which looked after the herbaceous timepiece, had wearied of the chore of watering it and of other general upkeep of the botanic chronometer and decided it'd be easier all round if they just concreted over it. That that was, we learned, a pretty accurate summary of the local, then national, then such is our hyper connected world global response, making the cementing of the floral clock possibly the most interesting event to have occurred in Western Supermare since the birth in 1945 of Richie Blackmore out of Deep Purple. We may have deviated from the point, wouldn't be the first time, but let's roll with it. Because sticking with the theme of things getting worse because bone-idle people found it easier to spitefully destroy something than do the work of tending and cultivating it, while pivoting from a garden ornament to a republic consecrated to the ideals of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness... (laughs) We learned that the Yanks aren't coming. Well, maybe not. We learned that much on the Yanks are or are not coming front depends on whether or not it turns out that a plurality of citizens of Earth's mightiest nation fancy four more years of government by a bloviating halfwit currently awaiting trial on 91 charges and recently stung for $83 million by a jury for further defaming a woman that a previous jury found that he had previously sexually assaulted and then defamed. We learned, yes, that Donald Trump had been elaborating upon his foreign policy vision. Oh, no. The only reasonable response. We learned that Donald Trump, despite presumably having had these things patiently explained to him by people in uniform in between deep sighs and anguished massaging of their own temples, still does not understand how NATO works or possibly what it is, conceivably how it is spelled.
7: The presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. you got to pay.
1: You wouldn't have heard of the big country involved in this scenario, which very definitely happened. It goes to another school in Canada, etc., we learned that Trump appears to believe that NATO is not a defensive alliance, but some sort of protection racket. Nice little continent you Europeans have here wouldn't want anything to happen to it. Still, we learned that if Trump is banking on the idea that there are maybe 75 million Americans even dafter than he is, he might be on to something. For we learned via a poll conducted by Monmouth University that roughly one entire fifth of Trump's fellow citizens believe that this woman... And this guy... And ...a single snap inside the 25. Here's Kansas City from the 19, throwing at the goal line, and it's caught by Kelsey for the touchdown! ...are, in fact, part of some ghastly deep state conspiracy to tip November's presidential election for Joe Biden. Suspicions which Sunday Super Bowl victory by the Kansas City Chiefs in overtime will have done little to dispel, the Chiefs being the team of Travis Kelsey, paramour of Taylor Swift... We confess to being somewhat hazy on the details of the plot via which this couple will ensure the re-election of President Joe Biden and the subsequent opening of the gates of hell... whatever, on the grounds that we haven't really asked, as all the people propounding it are either actually completely off their rockers, or pretending to be for money.
6: up is hard And in
1: this week, which contained February 14th, we learned that a well known purveyor of circular junk food had lit upon a way to make Valentine's Day, which is at least behind us for another year, even more annoying. We learned that said munger of Discoid Glop had floated the concept of a goodbye pie, this being a pizza to be delivered in a box adorned with a picture of a heart-shaped pizza rent-in-two to someone the purchaser felt had delighted them, romantically speaking, enough. An encore at this point for our chorus of aghast bewilderment.
6: What? What? What's, mean, why? what's the point of that? I don't do that? understand
1: that. From which we learned, or really surmised, that somebody somewhere got paid actual money to come up with this idea. So we learned that speculating that Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey are shock troops of the deep state may not presently be America's least dignified means of making a living. Or perhaps we should say, given the broadly pizza-oriented theme of this bit. Earning a crust. Thank you, thank you, and, and thank you. Thanks, everyone. Please be seated. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Miller. Thank you, Andrew.
0: And that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Carlotta Rubello and Chris Chermark. Our researcher was Nema Ekwe and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. After the headlines, more music's on the way and a briefing is live at midday here in London. The Globalist is back at the same time on Monday. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening and have a great weekend.